Good morning. It's great to be with you, uh, even if at a distance. Uh, I'm glad you've, you're taking this time to worship with us. It's Palm Sunday. doesn't really feel like it uh, because ordinarily we'd be here sitting in the sanctuary. Uh, we'd be watching kids come down the aisle waving palm branches. We'd be singing songs about the cross. We'd all be wearing nice clothes. And let's face it, right now you're probably in your pajamas. And so it doesn't feel like Palm Sunday. Fortunately, I'm not in my pajamas. You don't have to see that. No one needs to see that not even my poor, unfortunate wife. Um, But the fact that we can't be together in this room today doesn't change the fact that this is the day every year we celebrate Christ coming into Jerusalem, where he knew that a few days later, Good Friday would come. On Good Friday, of course, Jesus went to the cross. The, The most powerful man who ever lived allowed himself to be taken without a fight. The most innocent man, in fact, the only truly innocent man who ever lived, was found guilty of blasphemy and sedition and sentenced to death. And most importantly, God in human flesh died the death that you and I deserve to die. And that makes Good Friday the most important day in human history. That makes Good Friday, that event, that death, our salvation, what changed the world forever. So today I want to walk us through the events of that day, Good Friday, but we're going to do it in kind of an unusual way. Instead of looking at Jesus, I want us to look at six people who met him on that day for the very first time. And the reason why I'm doing that is we, in the, in the course of everyday life, we have a tendency to meet new people on a regular basis. Now, I know we're in a time of quarantine and social distancing, so right now that's not the case. But trust me, this time period is going to pass, and it, it hopefully won't be long. And we'll move, on, we'll move on into regular life again, and we'll look back on this as just a little parentheses. But in ordinary life, In ordinary life, people cycle in and out of our lives on a regular basis. Uh, We have this way of meeting new people on a a day-to-day basis. For instance, a new school year begins and our kids have new teachers. And so every child you have, that's four, five, six, seven teachers for you to get to know. Uh, Our doctor retires and we have to find a new doctor. And that means new nurses and new employees to get to know. Uh, A new family moves in down the street from us. Uh, A new guy moves into our office, uh, starts working at our company. And and when when some big life change happens to you or to me, the number of new contacts in our lives goes up exponentially. You've got all new neighbors, all new coworkers, all new uh, friends for your kids and their parents and so forth. And that doesn't even count the people who move in and out of our lives on, a, on an everyday basis, like grocery clerks, delivery drivers, the umpires at our kids' baseball games, the person you sit next to on an airplane. And the thing is, all of those people, even though we may only see them once and never see them again, all of those people matter to God. They're all people He created He knit them together in their mother's womb, in the words of Psalm 139. He has a plan for them. He died for them. He loves them. And and that means every one of those people represents a relationship that's an opportunity for us. It matters how we meet them. It matters uh, the first start, the, the, the first impression we make on them. So today I want us to look at six people who on Good Friday met Jesus for the very first time 
and what we can learn from those encounters that will help us see how we should meet people, how we should encounter people for the first time. So six people who met Jesus for the first time on Good Friday, we're going to take three of them at the same time, and that's Caiaphas, Herod Antipas, and Pontius Pilate. And we're going to do them at the same time because all three have something important in common. So Caiaphas was the high priest of Israel that year. As high priest, he was the religious leader of Israel, but also that was sort of a political function. Caiaphas was the man who gave the 30 pieces of silver to Judas so that he would betray Jesus. Caiaphas was the man who, uh, threw, who, who arranged the midnight trial, the, the trial in the, in the wee hours, the small hours of the morning in a cover of darkness after they had arrested Jesus where they condemned Jesus to death. So Caiaphas is a key figure. And Caiaphas has been out to get Jesus for quite a while, suspicious of him for quite a while. But as far as we know, Good Friday is the first time those two men were ever in the same room. They ever spoke to one another and had an encounter with one another. The second person is Herod Antipas. Herod is the son of Herod the Great, who we know from the Christmas story. Herod the Great, of course, tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was just an infant. Herod Antipas uh, doesn't have nearly the power his dad had, but has that same paranoid nature. We know this because Herod Antipas killed, executed John the Baptist after John had done nothing more than criticize Herod for stealing his brother's wife. And after, after John is executed, shortly afterwards, Herod hears about Jesus, hears about this teacher who's doing these miracles, who's, who's teaching, who's amassing this great uh, uh, gathering of, of, of followers. And he, his first impression is, oh, wait, does this mean John the Baptist has come back from the dead to, to haunt me? So for a while, Herod fears Jesus, but when he meets him on Good Friday, he encounters a man who's been beaten, who is shackled, and Herod takes one look at him and feels no fear at all. Instead, he says, okay, Jesus, let's perform some tricks. Can you show us a miracle? I want to see something. I want to be entertained. And Jesus refuses. And so Herod sends him away and refuses to exonerate him or render judgment on him. And then our third person is Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor sent by the Roman government to oversee Judea, the part of Israel where Jerusalem was. Pilate has the opportunity to set Jesus free also. He's a smart man. He can tell that he's being manipulated by Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, that they have an agenda, that Jesus is actually innocent of their charges, that he doesn't deserve death. Pilate understands all these things, but on the other hand, Pilate knows that that Jerusalem right now is a powder keg and that this group, the Sanhedrin, who are accusing Jesus, they have the power to start a riot, to start a great disturbance. He knows that his bosses back in Rome, especially Caesar, they value order and peace. And so if this riot breaks out, he, Pilate, is going to be held personally responsible. He could lose his job. He could see his career come to an end. And so very famously, he, he in front of everyone, washes his hands of any responsibility for Jesus's life. He says, I, I bear no responsibility for this. You take him, you do whatever you want, but, but I am innocent of his blood. And so three men meet Jesus for the first time on Good Friday, and all three walk away from Jesus unchanged. Why? Here's what they have in common. They all saw Jesus as a threat to the status quo. 
See, all three men knew that if I go with Jesus, if I get involved with Jesus, it's gonna change things for me in a way that I'm not comfortable with. And what we need to recognize is the people we meet on a daily basis, some of those people are gonna be very comfortable with life the way it is. And they're gonna see Jesus as a threat to that. And that includes people who are non-religious and even people who are hostile to the idea of faith. It's also going to include people who look at Jesus and say, I believe he was a good man. I believe that he was an excellent teacher. It includes people who would say, yeah, I'm a to learn from him. And it even includes people who would say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've been baptized. I've gone through confirmation. I've prayed the prayer. I'm a member of this church, but who've never really gotten down to the, the essentials of discipleship who've never really understood what it means to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. And so when, they, when you start talking to them about Jesus and what he really means and what he really requires, they're gonna see that as a threat. They're gonna say, I'm not ready for that. In, in other words, some of the people we encounter, some of the people who come in and out of our lives, although we will do our best to represent Jesus before them, it won't change them, at least not at first. Number one, don't get discouraged. That doesn't mean you did something wrong. Number two, don't give up because there could come a time in that person's life, and in fact, there probably will, later on in life when they don't like the status quo quite so much, when things, their life the way it is, is not satisfactory, when they reach the end of their rope, when they know something's got to change. And at that point, there's every possibility they could look back on that encounter with you, on what they saw in you and think, maybe I need what that man, what that woman had. So be encouraged. Even if you, your relationship with someone doesn't result in immediate transformation, you could be planting seeds that lead to greater things down the road. So let's move on to our next person, and that's a man named Malchus. And his story is found actually in all four Gospels, but I'm going to read to you out of Luke. Luke 22, verses 47 through 51. Verse 47 says, While he, that is Jesus, was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So what we have here is a story, but we don't have all the information. And you're about to see why God gave us four gospels instead of just one, because there are four different eyewitness accounts of the events of Jesus's life. And between the four different eyewitnesses, we get different details in each of the stories. As I said, the story of Malchus is found in all four gospels, but Luke didn't actually know the man's name. He just called him the servant of the high priest. And Luke didn't seem to know which one of the disciples attacked Malchus. We're about to find out from John. See, Luke... Luke is a, is a physician, he's a doctor, and so it makes sense that he would focus on the healing, that Jesus healed this man's ear. John, on the other hand, was a relative of the high priest. He's a relative of Caiaphas, and so it makes sense that he knows a few more details. He knows, he knows who attacked the servant of the high priest. He knows the servant's name, and that's found in, in John 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, 
and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So now we know the details. Let's talk about this man. He was the servant of the high priest. That's a word that literally means slave. And slaves in the ancient world filled a variety of roles. So Malchus could have been anything from a butler in in Caiaphas's house to a secretary in his place of business to something like a business executive. Uh, But we know on this particular night, his function was to stand in for Caiaphas. You can understand that a a wealthy, prominent man like Caiaphas is not going to get his own hands dirty, is not going to put himself in harm's way by walking out with this gang of thugs to arrest Jesus of Nazareth. So he sends his servant, he sends his slave Malchus to make sure everything goes the way the master wants it to go. So I want you to picture yourself walking through the darkness in the small hours of the night, carrying a torch, striding up the steep slopes of the Mount of Olives, just a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. And the, the, the traitor is right next to you, Judas Iscariot, with those, 12, with those 30 pieces of silver jingling in his pockets. He's the one who's going to point out Jesus when you find him. You've got this whole troop of men with, with swords and clubs waiting, waiting to arrest Jesus when they get there. And as you walk, you, you come upon a grove of olive trees And you see a a small group of men under one of those trees and they're on the ground, they're talking and one of them stands up. You notice that the three still on the ground, they look like they've just woken up. They've got that kind of wild-eyed expression that says, I'm not really here. But the fourth, although he looks like he's been crying, he's clear-eyed, he's confident and he strides right up to you. And he says to Judas, do what you've come to do. And Judas steps forward and kisses him, which is the signal that tells you this man is Jesus. And Jesus says something to Judas, and you're trying to puzzle out what he's just said, when all of a sudden, from out of the darkness, comes one of the other men flying towards you with his sword in his hand. And instinctively, you just turn to the left, and that small movement saves your life, because instead of hitting you in the forehead, it hits you on the side of the head, and you feel a a sensation of, of sharp pain, and you instinctively put your hand to your ear and you feel the blood gushing. Now, you don't know it yet, but what's happening is your body is in a state of shock. And so everything starts to slow down for you and you start to wonder, is this really happening? You look down and you see something in the ground, in the dirt, and it looks like a human ear. And you're wondering, whose ear is that? What is it doing on the ground? And then you notice Jesus come over and bend down and pick up that ear. And he stands next to you and and very gently he, he moves your hand away from your head. And then he steps back into place. And right about then, the, the crazy guy with the sword drops his sword and runs off into the darkness. And so do the other two. And, and some of the soldiers who are with you go chasing them, but most of them jump on Jesus. And, and they've got him on the ground and they're kicking and they're punching and they're binding his hands. And Jesus is not resisting. Instead, he's just looking up at you. He's got you fixed with his gaze. And you remember your wound and, and you put your hand back to the side of your head again. But this time you don't feel blood. You just feel your ear. Perfect and pristine like before. And they grab Jesus and they drag him away into the darkness. And you stand there for a moment thinking, is this real? Is this really happening? 
And after a few moments of standing there in the darkness by yourself, you feel the chill of the early morning air and you realize, yeah, this is real. This is not a dream. Now, that's literally all we know about Malchus. He's never mentioned again in the scriptures. So unfortunately, we don't know what happened to him after this. We don't know if he became a believer, a follower of Jesus. Here's what I would be willing to bet my life on, though. I bet Malchus never forgot what Jesus did for him that night. And you might say, well, of course he didn't. I'm saying to you, not only did he not forget, no one else forgot either. Because I guarantee you, for the rest of his life, whenever he met people, they'd go, Malchus, Mal- oh yeah, weren't you, the, weren't you the slave of the high priest? Weren't you the one that got attacked the night that Jesus of Nazareth was arrested? I heard, I heard that your ear got cut off, but it looks like you've got both ears. So was that story not true? I bet Malchus had to tell this story a hundred times before he left this world. He never forgot what Jesus did for him. And whether that ultimately issued in him becoming a follower of Jesus and his soul being saved, we'll just have to wait to get to heaven to find out. But here's the thing. Here's, here's that, how's that, how that applies to us. Malchus met Jesus for the first time that night, and Jesus performed an act of kindness that Malchus never forgot. You and I don't have that kind of miracle-working power. Or if you do, um, you might want to do something about COVID-19. <laughs> But we may not have the ability to put our hands on someone and make their pain go away. And make no mistake, everyone we meet is struggling in some way. Everyone we meet is bearing some kind of burden. And some of the people, in fact, a lot of the people we meet are just barely hanging on. We may not be able to take their pain away, but we can perform an act of kindness. We can treat them with kindness. And what is kindness? Kindness is simply thinking of their needs ahead of our own for a moment. Kindness is simply saying, how can I bear their burden for just a moment? How can I, how can I help them in some tangible way, make their load a little bit lighter? Kindness is actually one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. You and I don't have miracle working powers, but if the Holy Spirit is inside of us, then we have kindness. We have the ability to do incredibly kind things. And if you need some suggestions, even during this time when we're supposed to stay distant, think about this. If you've got a child in school, your child has teachers right now who you could be writing letters to and sending emails to. You could could send them a gift card to a local restaurant right now. You and I, a lot of us are are trying to support local uh, eating places. We're going through the drive-thru line. Have you considered leaving them a tip? You know, you may go through and, and get 20 bucks worth of hamburgers. Why not throw $10 on top of that and just say to the person at the checkout counter, I'm praying for you. Or, or maybe you can include more. You could, you could bake a pan of brownies and take them to your next door neighbor. You could call someone who works with you, who you don't usually hang out with and just say, yeah, I know we're, we're working from home now. I just wanted to see how you're doing. You can perform an act of kindness. Not only that, but you can... You can provide for our ability to take care of people who are struggling. Some of y'all remember uh, and were part of our church just during and after Hurricane Harvey. And and some of you remember that a lot of you donated to our benevolence fund. We were able to to give $60,000 to different people 
in our community, in our congregation, who needed to replace things that were destroyed in the flood, who needed uh, to fix up their homes, who needed to pay bills and, and didn't have the ability to do so. That was because people in this church said, hey, I haven't been affected by this, so I'm going to help people who have. So think about that. There are some of you watching me right now who are struggling because your income is dried up and, and, and I'm praying for you and I want us as a church to help you. But there are others like me, like many of you watching right now, and, and right now your income is doing fine. Right now your income has not changed. And if you're in that position, ask yourself, can I donate? Can I help someone who's hurting? Can I donate over and above my tithe uh, to our church's benevolence fund so that when this is all over or even in the midst of it, the church is equipped to help people who don't have enough. I, I'll tell you this, I had a church member last week call me and say, or actually email me and say, you know, the, the government is sending out these stimulus checks in a few weeks. And he said, I'm probably not going to get one because my income level is above the threshold. But he said, I'm going to donate to the church uh, an amount equivalent to what other people are getting in their stimulus checks. And, and he said, I'm going to do that so I can help people who don't have enough, so I, can off, so I can augment what the government is giving us. And maybe you're going to get one of those checks. And you might say, okay, this is great because my bills are all paid. Consider what you can do with that, how you can use that to help others. If you don't feel good about giving it to the church's benevolence fund, maybe there's someone specific you know who's struggling and you can help them directly. But kindness to someone who's hurting can make all the difference. So the next person we want to look at is Simon of Cyrene. Simon also meets Jesus on the day of his crucifixion. As far as we know, he'd never met him before. And his story is found in Mark 15, Mark 15, verses 20 through 21. And when they had mocked him, this is talking about Jesus and the soldiers. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby. By the way, that word compelled. Some of you know that uh, the law of Rome said that a Roman soldier could compel anyone to carry a burden for them for up to one mile. And that's what happens here. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Interesting, it says he was coming in from the country. Cyrene is actually in modern-day Libya. And I looked it up. Where we think Cyrene was, was 780 miles from there to Jerusalem. So if Simon has come to Jerusalem for the Passover, which is what we suspect, he's been walking for about a month. And he gets to the city of Jerusalem just in time to run into this procession coming from, uh, from Pilate's palace on its way to Golgotha. Now, it was standard practice for a person who was being crucified to have to carry the crossbeam uh, across their shoulders. And so we can, we can picture Jesus, and we know that John tells us this is what happened, that Jesus started out carrying the cross. We can picture after they've beaten Jesus and they, they tear this uh, purple robe off of his shoulders, they place that rough, heavy cross beam across his lacerated shoulders, and he starts to carry that cross down what we call the Via Dolorosa. But while that part was typical, what wasn't typical was Jesus had been flogged. 
Usually, you went straight from, uh, from the trial to the crucifixion. Uh, Jesus was flogged beforehand, which meant that he had already lost a lot of blood. And so somewhere along the route, those soldiers looked at each other and said, this guy's not going to make it. This guy is, is not going to get all the way to the top of the hill where they're going to crucify him. And, and if he dies before we get to put the nails through his hands and feet, if we don't have this public execution, which is supposed to serve as a deterrent to criminals in the crowd, you and I are going to be getting trouble. So let's not make him carry this cross any further. So he's at least alive for us to crucify him. And that's where they grab Simon of Cyrene. Now, the interesting thing about this brief story is not any of the stuff I just mentioned. The really interesting detail is that Mark mentions the names of Simon's sons. So here's Simon. Here's a guy who's only mentioned once in this one incident in the Bible. And yet, we're told the names of his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Why? Well, pretty much everyone who studies Scripture agrees that the only reason Mark would have mentioned this man's sons is if those boys, if those young men were known to the readers of the gospel. Why else would Mark mention it? It's a, it's a totally irrelevant detail unless he's saying, hey, a lot of you reading this 20 or 30 years after the event actually took place, a lot of you who are reading this, y'all know Alexander and Rufus. Well, this was his dad who carried the cross. Now, why would people 20 or 30 years after Good Friday know who Alexander and Rufus were? Well, there's an early church tradition that says that they became believers in Jesus and in fact became missionaries, became preachers of the gospel. And we don't know if that's true or not. It is early church tradition, but there are a couple of interesting, just really brief stories in scripture. Acts 11.20 says that some men from Cyrene, the place where Simon was from, went to Antioch and preached the gospel and helped plant a church there. Which, by the way, the church in Antioch that these men from Cyrene planted was the very church where Paul would later be a teaching elder. And that was the church that later sent Paul and Barnabas to become missionaries to the, to the wider Roman world, to basically what we call Europe today. So if these men from Cyrene were Rufus and Alexander, and we don't know that they were, but if it was those two, think about it, those were the two people that planted the church that got Paul started as a missionary and an apostle. But not just that, in Romans 16, 13, it's the end of the book of Romans, Paul is, is speaking to his friends in Rome and he's calling out names. He's basically saying, hey, say hello to this person and this person and this person. I miss them, how they doing? And so in Romans 16, 13, he says, say hello to Alexander, I'm sorry, to say hello to Rufus and his mother, who is a mother to me also. So again, we don't know if that's the same Rufus as the son of Simon, but let's say it is. If it is, isn't it remarkable? It, it, it probably means that Paul knew Rufus from Antioch, where Rufus planted that church, it probably means that Paul got to know Rufus and his mom, that, Paul, that Rufus's mom is a believer in Jesus. And so if this is the son and the wife of Simon of Cyrene, we don't know that Simon ever became a believer. There's nothing in the Bible that says he was a believer in Jesus. But doesn't it stand to reason that a man with a, a wife who Paul called his own mother and with two sons who were church planters and missionaries, wouldn't it stand to reason that Simon himself became a believer? Again, we can't prove that, but it's a good guess. So if Simon became a believer in Jesus, what changed his heart? 
Well, we know from Luke that he carried the cross. Luke says he carried it behind Jesus. So in other words, Simon's carrying that heavy cross beam. He's watching Jesus walk before him. And we can imagine that when they got to Golgotha and they took the cross beam off his shoulders, he stood there for a while and watched them nail Jesus's hands and feet to that cross. And we can imagine that he heard Jesus say those words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was there for Jesus's crucifixion. He was there for his death. He saw how Jesus faced death, how he faced hatred, how he faced ultimate pain and suffering. And here's the thing. Seeing how someone dies, seeing how someone faces pain of any kind, not just death, it it tells you a lot about that person's character. There's another person who met Jesus for the first time on Good Friday who we won't talk about today other than right now, and that's the centurion who crucified him, who after Jesus had breathed his last said, surely this man was the son of God. So Simon and the centurion, I believe, are two people whose hearts were changed just by watching how Jesus faced ultimate suffering. The thing about pain is pain tends to make you and me selfish. Pain tends to make us self-centered. When we're going through suffering of any kind, we're focused on ourselves. That's why when you wake up on Saturday morning with a headache, you get snappy with your spouse, with your kids. That's why, that's why if you lose your job, you're, you're in a bad mood towards others. You can lash out at others because pain makes us self-centered. We have this tendency to think, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, uh, that, that it's all about us and our suffering. And so when pain hits you and me, and it's going to happen, I mean, James, the brother of Jesus said it this way, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. He didn't say if, he said when. The most comforting psalm in the whole Bible, Psalm 23 says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, sometimes in life, even when God is your shepherd, you will go through times of darkness. And so we need to understand that when we go through those times of darkness, and maybe you're going through one of those right now, it's an opportunity for you and me to show the world that we suffer differently, that we handle pain differently, that we handle it with grace, with forgiveness, with mercy, with joy. We, we have an opportunity to show the world a, a different side of suffering. And, and I know this, I, I've got a perfect illustration for you. You remember last year, a, a young man named Botham Jean. Uh, he was a man who lived in Dallas. And uh, he was just sitting in his apartment one day, uh, a policewoman getting off her off duty, accidentally mistook his apartment for hers and walked into his apartment, saw this man sitting in what she thought was her own apartment, drew her gun and shot him to death. Now, the policewoman was white, both of them, Jean, was black. And so this immediately became worldwide news. It went from just a true tragedy, but just a local story to something that everyone in the world was watching. And you remember at the trial, after this policewoman was found guilty and during the sentencing, sentencing phase, during, phase, during what they call the victim impact statement, where, where family members get to get up and, and directly address the accused, Botham Jean's brother got behind the stand and, and spoke to this policewoman who had taken the life of his brother. And you remember what he said? He said, I don't hate you. I don't want you to be punished. I don't want you to go to jail. What I want 
is for you to know Jesus. I am praying for you. I am praying for your salvation. And then he asked the judge, would it be okay if I hugged her? And he got down off the stand and he walked towards her. And you you remember that young lady, that policewoman ran to him. You could tell she wanted that hug. She wanted that forgiveness. And you could hear the sounds of people in the courtroom weeping, reporters and and policemen. It, It was a story so amazing that People who have nothing to do with religion at all were talking about it for weeks to come because it was just that rare example where we saw the gospel in action. We saw someone who was suffering with grace, who experienced profound pain, something you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, and yet did it with a sense of grace and thinking of someone else. In fact, the very person who had caused his pain. We have the opportunity when we meet people, sometimes they come into our lives during a portion of our lives when we're struggling and suffering, we need to be ready to show them that the gospel has changed the way I look at pain. I still weep, I still struggle, I still hurt, but I do it with grace. And then finally, the the last person we're gonna look to, actually, we don't know his name. We're not given his name in any of the gospels, but his story is found in Luke 23, 39 through 42. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, again, meaning Jesus, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, I grew up hearing that character, this character called the thief on the cross. You've probably heard that term too. And so when you hear the term thief, you think of someone who maybe robs someone's house when they're out or someone who shoplifts. But I think it's important to note the term that Luke uses literally means evildoer criminal uh, in Greek means doer of evil. Mark calls him something else. He calls him a word that means bandit or revolutionary. So this is not a guy who's just stolen things that don't belong to him. This is a man who has shed blood. This is a man of violence. I think it's noteworthy also that Mark tells us that both criminals insulted Jesus. So when we reconcile the the different gospel accounts, what we get is here's a man who has been violent up until this day, a man who has shed blood, a man who deserves to die. And at the start of the day, even at the start of that very day, he's dismissive of Jesus. He's abusive towards Jesus. But somewhere during those six hours on the cross, as his muscles start to ache, as it becomes harder and harder to draw breath, as he can begin to see death coming, he begins to think about, I'm about to meet my maker. I'm about to end my life and stand before my God. And I know I'm not ready. In other words, this is a man who comes to Jesus with nothing to offer. He can't say, here's all I've done for you, Jesus. Here's how, all I've done for God, because he doesn't have good deeds to talk about. He can't say, here's what I'll do for you if you'll have mercy on me, because he's about to die. He's got nothing to offer in the words of the old gospel song. In my hands, no prize I bring simply to thy cross I cling. And yet Jesus, Jesus offers him hope. Some of the most beautiful words in scripture is when Jesus says, today you'll be with me 
in paradise. He doesn't say, well, I'll put in a good word for you and we'll see what happens. He doesn't say, good luck to you. That's all I can say. No, he says with assurance today, not tomorrow, not next year, not someday. Today, you will be with me in paradise. He offers him hope. And I guarantee you, however, much, however many more hours it was before they broke that criminal's legs and he died, he was able to bear his pain because he knew this is terrible, but it's leading to something good. I know, I know when this is finally over, it's gonna, it's gonna turn into something beautiful, something wonderful. And we can offer that. There's a lot of things Jesus did that we can't do, but one thing we can do, we can offer people hope. The word of God tells us what comes next. The word of God tells us the end of the story. Next week, we're gonna talk on Easter Sunday about our blessed hope and what the world will be like at the return of Jesus. But for now, just understand the word of God has enough information for us to be able to paint a vivid picture for people of what God has planned for our world and what the world's gonna be like when Jesus comes back and rules over this whole planet. We can paint that vivid picture. You don't have to be a preacher or a Sunday school teacher. You don't have to be a seminary graduate. The information is there in the scriptures. And if you don't know how to access it or where to find it, email me and I will gladly share that with you. But we can offer people hope. More than that, we can live with hope. We can walk through life in such a way people see the hope just spilling out over us. Uh, as, as it says in Second Peter, they should be asking us, I'm sorry, First Peter, they should be asking us the reason for the hope they see in us. We should be able to, we should be constantly having to answer the question, why are you so hopeful? Why do I see such hope in you? So let me just wrap it up by saying, as long as we live, people are gonna cycle in and out of our lives. And every single one of those people needs to know Jesus. Every single one of those matters to him. And so every single one of those relationships is an opportunity for us to ambush them with grace. And I'm not talking about the old canned gospel presentation that, that you have to present every time you meet somebody. If you do that and it works, fantastic. I'm not saying that we have to do that in order to be successful or faithful to God. What I'm saying is we have to look for opportunities to ambush people with grace, to surprise them with grace that they weren't expecting because they don't see it anywhere else. And some of them are gonna be like Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate. They're gonna be people who are very comfortable with life the way it is. And so they're not gonna be interested in what they see in us or hear from us, but we can plant seeds in their hearts so that someday when their status quo isn't so comfortable, they'll remember the, that the something they saw in us that they're lacking. Some others are gonna come into their lives when they're hurting and an act of kindness from you or me is gonna make all the difference. It's gonna be something they won't be able to get out of their minds. And it's gonna be a constant reminder, there's a different world, there's a better way. There are other people who are gonna come into our lives at times when we're the ones hurting. And the way we endure suffering, when we endure it with grace, with forgiveness, with mercy, with joy, is gonna speak volumes to them. They're gonna see there is something different about these people. And then there are others who are gonna come into our lives at a time when they are struggling with, with fears of death, with dread, with anxiety about the future. And we have the opportunity 
to share with them the hope that we have and and to live out that hope before them. And when they see that hope and they start to wonder, what is it that causes you to be so hopeful, so undefeatable, we'll have the opportunity to share with them the world to come and how we know that's waiting for us. So my question for you today is, are you willing to pray and ask the Lord, Lord, give me eyes to see every single person you bring into my life as an opportunity, as someone you brought into my life specifically so I could make an impression on them for you? Will you pray every day, starting today, that God would, help, would prepare you for the divine appointments that he has in mind for you? And, and you might wonder, well, why should I do this? I mean, my life's busy enough already. I've got plenty on my plate already. Why should I be so intent on the kind of impression I'm making on people that I barely know and may never see again? Well, I'll tell you why. Because deep down inside, we're all just like that nameless criminal hanging on the cross next to Jesus. We had nothing whatsoever to offer our Father. We didn't come to Jesus saying, look at all I've done for you. We didn't come to Jesus saying, bring me in and here's the benefits you're going to get. When we cried out to Jesus, those of us who are Christians, when we called on his name and said, I need salvation, Jesus didn't do some mental math and say, well, I better put him on my team because that's really gonna benefit me. No, when we cried out to Jesus, he just said, I've been waiting for you to ask. This This is what I've been hoping for and waiting for your entire life. And he welcomed us home. Isn't that good news? Isn't our God amazing?